Imagine That Studios and Karu Studios in association with Harper Voyager Books presents Tales from the Archives, Volume 2 The Official Anthology of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences Merry Christmas, Verity Fitzroy, by Pip Ballantyne. Christmas Eve, 1891. If there was anything that Verity Fitzroy of the Ministry 7 disliked, it was snow and sitting still. So having to endure both was a little bit beyond the pale, especially on Christmas Eve. Presently sitting outside a small house in Hampstead, she was getting quite wet with snow falling on her head and thinking longingly of the summer. Four of her fellow urchins were inside the house, rifling around for the evidence that Agent Harrison Thorne needed to have their owner arrested. It was one of their little duties that kept the orphans solvent and busy. Verity knew full well the problems she would have if the children were not kept entertained. They had watched the man leave his house and then scampered across the slowly whitening garden. The only window that wasn't secure was a tiny one that the younger children, Jonathan, Jeremy and Colin, could get through, but not Verity. It wasn't that she had gained any girth, but she had grown. Fifteen years old and she might still have some growing left in her. Verity preferred not to think about it, but her mind did drift to the other issue that was constantly calling to her. It was a question of her past, and quite possibly her future. The fact that Uncle Octavius, the man her father had held in such high regard, and Verity had thought dead for so many years, had actually lived, and was now a murderer, had proved quite the distraction in her life. She'd told no one, not even Harrison Thorne of the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, what she had seen while perched on a crate outside a Shoreditch boarding house. Verity replayed the scene over and over again in her head as she sat under the trees, concealed by shadows, to watch for the return of the owner of the house. She had a small tin whistle in her cold fingers. When blown, the sound would not be heard by any human ear, but the tiny drum in Colin's pocket would vibrate. As she sat watching the road, in her other pocket, her hand was wrapped around the circular device that she had recovered from her thought-dead uncle's rooms. Its ticking had stopped, but somehow she felt better touching it. Complete, somehow. It stilled her thoughts. The lights of the city were distant and twinkling in the chill of the night. From this distance, London looked like a fairy tale kingdom. Verity smiled bitterly to herself, thinking how that fairy tales often contained the darkest shadows and the vilest monsters. She was so engrossed in her brooding that it took her a long moment to comprehend the faintest ticking in the back of her head. Immediately Verity knew that it was not from the device in her pocket. It came from a far more distant source. To her practised ear it was the slow rattle of a mechanism that had not been wound for a very long time. She felt it had to be an old machine somewhere and it was almost calling for help. Verity whipped her head around, looking for the source, but there was no one nearby, and certainly no machinery. However, the sound was now registering as familiar. 
She had heard it last while following a man with a clockwork leg, and it was he that had eventually led her to Uncle Octavius. Perhaps this too was something to do with him. On the wings of these thoughts, she jumped up and left the shadow of the tree to trot to the low wall surrounding the garden. The trees and shrubs were heavy with snow, and everything was as silent as the grave. Silent that was, except for the sound of her own ragged breathing and the constant rattling tick of a machine nearby, calling to Verity. She shot a glance back over her shoulder at the house, but there were no signs of life or lights on. The boys were being very professional. So Verity thought she could afford a little investigation of her own. Cautiously, she went out onto the quiet road and ventured down away from the house a little. Verity frowned as she squinted down the street. Something was moving at the intersection, a figure that was a patch of grey in the patchwork of shadows and snow. The whirring and ticking was growing so loud in her head that she could no longer hear her own breathing. It was almost as if she was becoming less and less aware of her own body and more part of the mechanism racing in her head. The figure up ahead turned towards her and the suggestion of its head tilted slightly. Something that might have been a bowler hat was tipped in her direction and as it did so it moved from the shadows just a fraction. A puff of steam stained the dark air at its back as Verity's eyes widened. It was not human, but it was human-sized and shaped. It also had no flesh. Verity immediately knew the word for it, an automaton, a human replicant made of cogs, gears and pistons. Her father had spoken of such things and the clankertons that made them. Verity still remembered the awe in his voice. Those that she had heard about, however, had been mindless creations controlled by their maker. This somehow seemed to radiate personality. What her parents would have given to see such a thing. Her father had been an archaeologist and making had not been quite his forte. Her mother, however, had played with machinery like many of the middle class did. It was not particularly ladylike, but mother had never been bothered by such things. All these thoughts darted through her mind, even as she realised the strange piece in her pocket was warm, almost burning. She was caught between terror and delight. Something about the figure was menacing, the way its eyes burned with the internal fires, and yet it was a walking marvel. Finally, Verity found herself trotting towards it, one hand wrapped around the tiny device her uncle had most likely killed to have, and the other outstretched before her. The falling snow made the whole scene a strange picture postcard. Then she heard Colin's scream pierce that odd bubble of quiet. Verity shared one strange look with the automaton and then spun around on her heel. Now the ticking was washed away in a flood of fear. As Verity ran back the way she had come, she suddenly realised the horrible thing she'd done, the one thing she had promised never to do. She had put her own problems ahead of the children that were hers to protect. She rounded the corner into the garden of the house and saw the figure of a tall, gangly man with his hand wrapped around Colin's arm. Jonathan and Jeremy were dancing around him, battering at him while he dragged Colin back towards the house. The knowledge that whoever this man was, he was dangerous and very unlikely to call the coppers welled up inside her. The path she was racing down was slippery and she was panicked. Verity slipped and fell, skidding down the path on her side and colliding with the man. For a moment it was a tangle of children, an angry, squawking man, arms and legs flying. However, it was the children that were faster and lighter on their feet. Colin and Jeremy got up first, while Verity pulled Jonathan to his feet. They didn't need to discuss the situation. All four of them ran. 
She took the lead, half carrying Jonathan, but making sure she didn't outdistance the boys. They ran through the streets of the quiet town with the yells of the man fading only gradually into the background. Verity took them through the back gardens, alleyways and amongst the trees, but she did not do so blindly. The Ministry 7 knew London more intimately than any adult. Even the elephants of Diamond Dottie's group couldn't squeeze through the gates and hide as well as they could. Finally, after a long while, after turning yet another corner, Verity stopped. In the grey light cast by the moon, they all caught their breath. She didn't want to look at them, but eventually she turned her head. Not many children that young could look accusatory, but children of the seven hadn't been real innocents for years. Jonathan and Jeremy, maybe never. What happened? Jonathan whispered, and she couldn't take the bitter tone of his voice. What happened? Colin glared at her, his fists clenched at his side. She left her lookout. She wandered off like a duffer, like we didn't matter. There were three young children, but in that moment they could have been three judges pronouncing sentence. Why? Jeremy whispered. Why'd you do it, Verity? We could have been killed, or worse. I... I... Verity replied, her voice catching and her chest tightening. I was... There was no explanation. She hadn't told them about Uncle Octavius or the little piece of clockwork in her pocket, nor could she tell them about the strange automaton in the dark. Her parents and their death was a danger she had brought to the doorstep of the Ministry Seven. We're supposed to look after each other, Colin went on, staring up at her with eyes brimming with tears. Without each other, what have we got? Nothing, she whispered in reply. Nothing. Her eyes, too, welled up with tears, and she couldn't recall having felt so utterly useless in her entire life, even when her parents had been killed. Even then, Verity had possessed a plan. However, now the truth could not be ignored. She'd failed the Ministry Seven. She couldn't imagine what Henry and Christopher would say to her. She simply couldn't face them. "'Go home,' she said to the boys, her voice coming out in painful gasps. "'Go home!' Before they could reply, Verity spun about and ran. They would easily find their way back to the safe house in Kensington, but she didn't want to go back there. She couldn't. The events of recent months meant she wasn't any good for them. In fact, she was just the opposite. Verity Fitzroy ran through the snow, her tears freezing on her cheeks. Her feet were carrying her somewhere that she didn't really consciously think about. She caught a ride on the back of a steaming bus heading towards the Thames and found herself staring up with burning eyes at the sign, Miggins Antiquities. It was the home of the ministry. All the children knew where it was, but none had ever been inside. Fresh tears started on her cheeks. It had been an age since she'd cried, probably back at the workhouse. Yet her failure cut deep. Child, you all right? A female voice made Verity hastily brush away her tears. She didn't like hearing herself called that, but the kindness in the tone soothed her somehow. A lovely lady dressed all in black with a pair of spectacles perched on the end of her nose was standing by the door to the shop. A chink of light was visible behind her as she stepped out from there. Yes, Verity stammered out, though it was far from the truth. You're one of Agent Thorne's urchins, the woman said with a strangely distant smile. Verity didn't know Mr Thorne had shared his use of the Ministry 7 with anyone else in the organisation, but she wasn't surprised. A small smile formed on her lips. It was nice to be considered part of the agent's world. Verity nodded slowly. Well, no one should be standing outside in the snow, especially on Christmas Eve. The woman pushed the door open wider and gestured Verity in. The girl did not need further incentive. 
getting a chance to see inside the ministry was an impossible treat. The woman shut the door behind them and guided Verity upstairs. The rows of desks were empty of people, but it looked like many clerks worked on the first floor. I am Dr. Josepha Blackwell, said the woman as they went. I work in the research laboratory. In fact, I like to think of myself as the research laboratory, though I have a few helpers. She paused and spun around. I have some hot chocolate still warm in the lab. I think you would like that, yes? Verity nodded, but stayed silent lest she break the spell and be cast out into the snow again. This woman worked in the very place the girl dreamed of. Was she catching a glimpse of her own possible future? After being ushered into a lift, the doctor pulled the Chadburn for up. Her eyes gleamed slightly as she examined Verity. The girl thought she had seldom been under such close scrutiny. So, the older woman said, what brings you to Miggins Antiquities on Christmas Eve with all those tears on your face? Apparently all that Verity had been waiting for was an ear to listen. She found herself blurting out everything to the odd doctor, everything except what exactly had distracted her outside the house. Fresh, bitter tears flowed when she got to the angry words she'd exchanged with the boys. Finally, she exclaimed, Maybe it is better I'd never joined the Ministry Seven. They would be better off without me. All I do is mess things up. Really? Josepha Blackwell leaned down and peered into her eyes. Do you really think so? How interesting. They had reached the laboratory, and after the doctor had spun the wheel so that the massive iron door unsealed itself, she led Verity in. It was another kind of fairyland to the girl. Her gaze darted enviously over the long, wide benches covered with an array of machines, tools and bubbling liquids. Her fingers itched to grab hold of things, to begin figuring out how they work and what they could do. The ticking and whirring in her head, though, began again, and for a moment it became such a cacophony that all thoughts were drowned out. While Verity was getting her bearings, Josepha bustled around, turning on a Bunsen burner, which did indeed contain a white liquid that had to be milk. Though the idea of drinking from a flask used in a laboratory was very strange, Verity nonetheless accepted the chocolate when it was offered to her. She warmed her hand on the glass and watched the doctor. The woman even produced a couple of rather flattened marshmallows from her bag and popped them in. When she sat back on the stool, she once again watched Verity with the intensity of a spectacled hawk. The girl sipped nervously at her drink and almost jumped when the doctor spoke. You say you'd be better to have never met your friends? She leaned forward, her eyes huge behind her spectacles. Are you willing to find out if that is the truth? Verity thought of Jonathan, Jeremy and Colin's faces, the hurt and resentment there. They would be better off. The words choked her throat, so she just nodded. Hmm, let's be scientific about it, the doctor said, tugging Verity over to an object in the corner with a large sheet over it. When Josepha yanked it off, it was revealed as a large wire ball standing over six feet at the highest point and made of a strange metal that looked like it might be some kind of silver alloy. The doctor let out a sigh. I've been working on this beauty in my lunchtime. Axelrod thinks it will never work, and I've never been able to find anyone willing to give it a try. She turned to Verity with an open face of expectation. The girl swallowed hard, but her brain was burning with curiosity. How does it work? Verity inquired, wondering for an instant if her brain was in danger of frying. Oh, Josepha waved her hand. It is quite on the sharp edge of the latest developments. It is patterned on something we like to call the ether gates, but instead of cutting through space, this one delves into the majesty of the mind. Verity stared at her. Come, come, the doctor frowned. Where is your sense of adventure? Surely those tears and horrible feelings inside you are worth investigating. The ticking began again, repetitive and spurring Verity onwards. Curiosity brought her up to stand next to the doctor. 
Josepha beamed at her and opened a cunningly contrived lock on the side of the sphere. Verity stepped in and closed the gate behind her while the older woman went to a control panel only a few feet away. I suggest you close your eyes, she said in a very sprightly tone. Things may get a little um, bright. In for a penny, in for a pound, Verity thought, and did as she was bid. Immediately she felt the hum and whir of the ticking replaced by something else. A smell of hot copper and the caress of electricity on her skin. For a moment she was afraid to open her eyes. When she cautiously levered them open, it was immediately apparent she was no longer in Miggins Antiquities. She was on the street of the East End, or rather in an alleyway. The smell was powerful, and she remembered how it had hit her palpably when she first arrived in London. Grey water trickled under her feet and distant sobbing could be heard nearby. A child's sobbing. Wrapping her arms around herself against the cold, Verity followed the sound. Leaning against the wall was Jeremy, his face smeared where tears had cut through the dirt on his face. He was leaning over his brother Jonathan, who had his hand clenched on the side that was bleeding. Scarlet blood was pooling on the cobblestones, the only brightness in the drab scene. Neither of the boys seemed to see her, and when Verity leaned down to touch them, her hand passed right through them. Josepha's voice reached her and whispered things she could never have known otherwise. Remember when you saved Jeremy from the elephant gang? Without you, this is what would have happened. He's not going to make it, I'm afraid. Verity felt the clench of despair at the sight of the little boys, but there was nothing she could do, and deep down she knew there was more to see. The girl trailed on down the alleyway and out onto the street. It looked just as it had on that first day she saw the twins, but a dire knot was forming in her stomach. She passed another alleyway and observed a group of men drinking gin. However, they were not all men. Some were boys, and two she recognised instantly. Young Christopher was leaning against Henry, his eyes half-lidded, a tilted grin on his face. Henry looked pale and grey under the eyes, somehow older than his sixteen years. Without you, without meeting Harrison Thorne, which you did, Henry never had a purpose. Josepha's voice sounded almost sad. So much potential. And he washed it all away with gin. I don't want to see more, Verity said, shaking her head, horrified by these images of those she loved. Yes, loved. She understood that now. The electricity smothered her again until she was standing once more in the laboratory of the ministry, inside the gleaming wire cage. Josepha's wide eyes were the first thing she saw. Well, she inquired softly as she opened the door to her sphere, but her fingers were twitching nervously. Verity was so glad that it wasn't real, that she hadn't been swept off to some strange other world that she didn't exist in. Yet neither could she bear to answer questions like some laboratory creature. Instead, she bolted from the room to the lift and then out of the building altogether. No ticking was in her brain, no angry thoughts about her own failings. All she thought of was the feel of the snow on her face and getting back to the safe house in Kensington. Verity? Harrison Thorne stepped out of the shadows, his bowler hat gleaming white with fresh snow. He was locking the door behind him. Whatever are you doing here? Verity spun around, feeling her cheeks blushing hard. I met a lady called Dr. Josepha Blackwell. She let me in, showed me something horrible and marvellous. A frown formed on Harrison's face. Dr. Blackwell? I think you must be mistaken. She left two days ago to meet her family in Jersey. I saw her off on the airship myself. Verity tilted her head. I... I must have... 
Well, I must have been mistaken. Had she really met Dr. Blackwell? Or had it all been some kind of hallucination? Or something even wilder? Is everything all right, Verity? The agent inquired, shifting the large package he was carrying to his other hand. In the end, did it really matter who it was that had let her in and shown her that terrible reality? What mattered was that she had found the will to return to her loved ones, because she wasn't alone. She did have a family. Verity turned to him and let out a laugh. Everything, everything is just topping, Mr. Thorne. She glanced down at the package he was carrying. Is that what I think it is? He tilted his head. If you are thinking it is a goose, then indeed you are correct. Somehow she knew exactly what he was up to. And am I right in presuming that it is bound for a house full of ragamuffins in Kensington? He tipped his hat. As always, Miss Fitzroy, you are sharply observational. I was just heading there, since... Well, I have no family of my own to share the eve with, but... Tell me, what were you doing here at Miggins? Verity thought of her fellow ministry workers, their sharp little faces, and the many, many good times they had shared. And then she thought of her lost mother and father, and how, despite all that, she had managed to find herself a family again. Why, Mr. Thorne, I have come to fetch you to table. She tucked her arm under the elbow of the startled agent. No one should be alone on this day of all days. As they walked down the street, she whispered to herself, and apologies and forgiveness will hopefully be just as welcome as that goose. Snow was falling in London town. There was a strange automaton following her and an even stranger ticking in her head. Yet Miss Verity Fitzroy put all those things away from herself. Tomorrow was Christmas. She had family to welcome her and the days after that would have to look after themselves. Theme music composed and performed by Alex White. Find out more at thegearheart.com. For more from the Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences, order your copy of The Janus Affair, a Ministry of Peculiar Occurrences novel, from your favorite bookstore, or online from Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, the iBookstore, or the Science Fiction Book Club. This podcast is protected by the Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, share-alike 3.0 license. For more information, visit creativecommons.org. Tales from the Archives. And Imagine That Studios, Koru Studios, Harper Voyager Production. I'm T. Morris. And I'm Philippa Ballantyne. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening.